All right, well, good morning and welcome again. Uh, man, it's always great to see you guys on a Sunday morning. For those of you watching at home, thank you so much for continuing to tune in. Uh, well, we are continuing our series on the prophets today. And for the past several weeks, we've been talking about this idea of restoration. That in spite of Israel's utter sin and unfaithfulness, and in the midst of the terrible judgment they were experiencing in exile, God delivers this amazing message of hope in his promise and his purpose, that he was going to rescue and renew his people. And in order to really understand, to really appreciate this promise of hope, we need to understand what it really means to be restored. Well, as many of you know, a few weeks ago, I had the misfortune of breaking my finger. I broke my uh, index finger on my left hand, and I was playing basketball, although I will say that a surprising number of you accused me of lying <laughs> and suggested that I had broken my finger picking my nose, which I didn't appreciate. <laughs> but I was playing basketball, and I broke my finger, and so for the past couple weeks, I've been you know, just kind of resting it, icing it, protecting it. And the simple reason is I, I want it to get better. I want it to heal. And I want it to return to be restored to its former strength and function. Because really, you know, an index finger is a pretty important finger. I need it to type uh, my sermon, so I need it for work. I've got like 3,000 word sermons to type, and so it needs to, finger needs to have some agility and dexterity. I need this finger for mountain biking because this is one of my breaking fingers, and so I need the finger to be strong, but also kind of sensitive. And there's a lot of things, right? I need this finger to play basketball, to cook, to play the guitar. And look, I'm just gonna be honest with you guys. This is my favorite nose-picking finger, so <laughs> I need it for that too. <laughs> but the point is, restoration isn't simply about the pain and swelling going down. It's not just about my finger getting to the point where it looks okay and feels okay. Uh, true restoration me means a return to its purpose and function. And when we think about the restoration of God's people, I think sometimes we kind of miss this vital piece. That God doesn't simply want to make the pain go away. It's not just that he wants to take Israel out of exile and bring them home so that they can rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild their nation. And it isn't even just about forgiveness and them kind of having things be good between them and God once again. For God to truly restore Israel would mean bringing them to a place where they could finally fulfill their purpose and function. For them to be who God has been calling them to be since the beginning. These things that we've been talking about in this series for several years, being light and blessing, being faithful and obedient, living these lives of service and devotion that God had called them to. And so one of the most important questions for us as we think about God's plan and God's purpose for restoration is how will God do this? How is it that God is going to bring Israel to a place where they could actually be this kind of people? 
Because remember, you know, we spent the first five weeks of this series talking about Israel's failure to do all of these things. To be who they were called to be, to do what they were called to do. One of the main themes of this story for the last four or five years has been this inability to be faithful and obey. So in light of this, how is it that God will actually restore his people to the point where they could be the people he called them to be? And so this morning, we're going to continue to explore this theme of restoration and redemption. And we're going to look at this amazing passage that powerfully answers this question of how. And honestly, I think this is one of the coolest passages in the entire Bible. It's powerful, it's kind of weird and and haunting, but it paints an unforgettable picture of God's restorative power. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 37. And you know, the book of Ezekiel is a lot like the book of Isaiah. The first half of the book is full of these judgment prophecies, this condemnation, calling out Israel for their sin, for their turning away from God. But in the second half of the book, Ezekiel begins to turn his focus to this message of hope, to this promise of God of rescue and redemption. And so here in Ezekiel 37, God shows the prophet a vision, takes him to this place and shows him a vision that gives us a crazy, powerful illustration of precisely what God wants to do in us and through us. So let's read Ezekiel 37, beginning in verse 1. It says, The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, Can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Now, I think a lot of us are are probably a little bit desensitized towards images of death and destruction. Uh, Basically, any one of your typical war movies or superhero movies, there's a pretty good chance you're going to see a scene with a field littered with dead soldiers or dead bad guys or dead somebody. And so it might not seem like that big of a deal. But we have to recognize how horrific this scene would have been for Ezekiel. This is a pretty messed up vision. Because God leads him into this valley and he looks out and it says, there are, it's full of bones. The idea here is that this is piles of bones as far as the eye could see. This is a picture of death. These are dry bones, it says, which means that they are long dead and completely lifeless. And in the face of this nightmarish scene, God asks Ezekiel this question that seems pretty ridiculous, almost absurd or comical. He says, can these bones live? I mean, can you imagine what Ezekiel was thinking? Really, God? Can dried up bones come to life? For both Ezekiel and for us as the reader, the answer seems pretty obvious. 
it seems pretty clear. I'm not a doctor, but you know, I have a pretty good sense that when you're a pile of bones, your chances of living are pretty slim. And what's immediately clear is that this is a picture of Israel's state in exile. Uh, the Valley of Dry Bones seems to represent a defeated army, which kind of captures this idea that Israel is this defeated people. They've been conquered, their homes and their nation destroyed, their national identity is in ruins. But in the context of the prophets and of what we've been talking about for the last several weeks, we know that this isn't just about the immediate situation. It's not just the exile. It's not just Israel's national fortunes. This picture of lifelessness captures the spiritual reality for Israel as well. This is a people who are spiritually lifeless. It's clear that they have failed to live the lives that God called them to live. And so this question, can these bones live? Can these dried up old bones come back to life? It points us, in a sense, to the hopelessness of Israel's situation, to how bleak their spiritual lives really were. Now, if you remember from several weeks ago, in the opening message to this series, I talked about this idea of the sin-grace cycle, this pattern in Israel's history that we've seen over and over and over again, that God would show his people grace. He would save them. He'd redeem them. He'd bring them out of slavery or to defeat or something, and he'd bring them into a place of blessing. He'd provide for them and love them. But again and again, Israel would turn away from him, turn towards idolatry, sin, injustice. And this wasn't just once or twice. It happened over and over and over again. Israel didn't change, they didn't learn their lesson, and they didn't really ever get better. And what we learn in this cycle is that this sinfulness really is the human condition. See, the lesson of the Old Testament narrative isn't that Israel is a bunch of losers who couldn't get it right. It's not that there were just a few bad apples that ruined things for Israel. The point isn't that God chose wrong and he should have chose a better people group. Instead, the point of this whole narrative is that Israel is representative of all sinful people. And their repeated failure, this cycle, the fact that it just happens over and over and over again, is a reminder of human brokenness. Something is wrong with people at a heart level. Uh, when I was a kid, we had this uh, dog named Maggie, and Maggie was beautiful. I loved her. She was fun and sweet, but she was wild. And so we had trouble, especially when she was young, keeping her in the yard. Uh, she could jump really high. This dog had hops, and so she could jump over our wall into the neighbor's yard. She was also fast and strong and agile, and so any chance she would get, she'd try to dart out of the, the side gate and into the neighborhood. And so we had to learn this skill of like when you wanted to go on the side gate of opening the door just enough and then squeezing through all the while like kicking Maggie and trying to keep her from getting past you and getting out of the yard. 
And so she would regularly get, get out, and so we'd have to chase her down. And of course, when we found her and we brought her home, that was great. But it didn't really solve the problem. And you know, we could build higher walls, we could devise a new system for opening the side gate. But really, the problem wasn't the situation. It was who Maggie was. It was her heart. She just wanted to get out and run. As much as we loved her, as much as we took care of her, and as much as she seemed happy with us, she couldn't control this urge to go. It was just kind of baked into who she was. And this is kind of what we see in the Old Testament story, that this is the human condition. And we see it in Israel's story, but really it's, it's our story too. This inability to obey, the inability to love and trust God, the inability to just stay in the good life that he has for us. And this is just kind of baked into who we are. And so the idea of Israel being restored in this way, of actually becoming a people who will stay, who will live the life God has called them to, to become a faithful community committed to God's purpose for them. At this point in the story, it seems kind of hopeless. It seems about as likely as a valley of dry bones coming to life. And yet, God asks Ezekiel this question. Can these bones live? And Ezekiel's answer is pretty amazing. He says, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. And in a way, he's saying, God, you know, I know what I think the answer is. I know what logic and reason tell me the answer should be. I know enough about science to know that dead bones don't usually come back to life. But I'm going to respond to your question in faith. I'm going to assume that despite everything I can see, despite the obvious hopelessness of this situation, that you are God and I'm not. That you're the God of life and death and I'm not. And you can do things that I don't understand or comprehend. So God, you tell me. You tell me, God, can they live? I don't know, because it's up to you. And that is an amazing answer. And God's response, the way God moves next, is even better. He gives us this vision of what he wants to do for his people. Let's go back to our passage, verse 4. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I'll put breath in you and you will come to life then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. 
I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breath, from the four winds, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I'll bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I'll settle you in your own land, then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it, declares the Lord. So Ezekiel preaches to these dead, useless bones, and they begin to come to life. God begins to reanimate and rebuild them. Tendons and flesh and skin begin to appear on the bones. And you have to really imagine this. You know, try to imagine what Ezekiel is seeing, these bones beginning to take on flesh and skin and rising up into this huge, vast army. But in the midst of all this, there's this key phrase. Ezekiel notices that there was no breath in them. And this is an important detail. Ezekiel realizes that these reconstructed, reanimated bodies, they can't really come to life without breath. Now, you know, this obviously makes sense in terms of basic physiology, but there's much more at play here. Because the word for breath in Hebrew is ruach. And this word, ruach, is, is pretty flexible. And so in some places it's translated as breath. Some places it means wind. And still other places it means spirit. This is actually the word that the Old Testament uses for the spirit of God. And so as we read through this passage, you notice all three of those words. The translators are going back and forth between different words, breath, wind, spirit, depending on the context. But as a Hebrew reader would read through this passage, they would only see this one word over and over and over again, ruach. And it's repeated so many times, it probably would have felt a little bit ridiculous, pretty repetitive. It appears over 10 times in this 14 verses. And it's an intentional play on words uh, by Ezekiel. Because while a body obviously needs breath, ruach, to come to life, What God really wants us to see is that we need spirit ruach to really live. The passage is just dripping with this idea that as we see this picture of restoration and resurrection, it's ruach, it's spirit that defines the work of this rebuilding. And Ezekiel is really trying to hit us over the head with this one truth. 
that true restoration, for people to truly come to life, for people to truly find their purpose, means that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, needs to be breathed into his people. And this is a brand new idea in the prophets. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the Spirit of God moving and active, and the Spirit works to accomplish God's purpose in the world. And from time to time, the Spirit would come upon people for a short period of time. You may remember the phrase, the Spirit of the Lord was on David, or the Spirit of the Lord was on Samson. That's common enough. But the idea of the Spirit in us permanently is brand new, unheard of so far in the story. But what God is revealing is that this is one of the most essential parts of his new covenant, of his promise of hope. Just a chapter before in Ezekiel 36, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is a a revolutionary idea that as part of this new covenant, God was going to actually fix the problem of sin. Not just the uh, penalty for sin, not just the guilt of sin, but actually the power of sin. He says, look, I, I know that there is a part of you that's like a dog that just wants to run. That, do, that just wants to leave. That doesn't want to obey. That doesn't want to love selflessly. That doesn't want to pursue righteousness. I know there's a part of you that just resists me at every turn. And until I go in there and address that, that one thing, until I go in there and fix that problem, change that part of you, we're always just going to be stuck in this cycle. It will go on forever. And so here's my solution. I'm going to breathe my spirit into you. I'm going to breathe my spirit of truth, my spirit of power, my spirit of love, I'm going to breathe that inside of you, into your heart, into the part of you that controls your will and motives and desires. And that spirit will transform your whole life from the inside out. Uh, One of my favorite movies ever, by the way, I actually have an official top ten list of my favorite movies. This is number nine, is the Pixar movie that, weirdly enough, is called Inside Out. I actually preached on this movie for CBC at the Movies uh, three or four years ago. And in this movie, each person has this internal control center where their emotions guide and influence their thoughts and behaviors. And this is obviously fictional. And, you know, the inside of us is a lot more complex than that. But it's a pretty insightful movie. And in scripture, when God talks about the heart, this is sort of what he means. This place inside of us, this control center where our emotions, our desires, our will, 
our motives, they shape us. They shape who we are and how we think and how we behave. And what God is saying here is that my spirit is coming into the control center. He's going to move in there, make a home there, and take leadership over your heart. And it's not that the spirit replaces our emotions and desires. He's not coming in with a spear to kill Amy Poehler's character and joy and sadness and all those other people. It's not that. We're not going to be robots or slaves. But what he's saying is that the spirit is going to come in and, and, and run the show. He's going to guide and influence our emotions, our will. He's going to bring God's truth, God's power, God's law, God's character into that space. And he's going to renew and renovate the whole place, our entire hearts. And because of that, we can now want new things. We can now love new things. We have a brand new capacity for love and faithfulness and goodness. We have a brand new capacity to actually be who we're called to be. And this really is one of the most beautiful promises we see in the prophets, that one day this would be a reality, that in the days of the new covenant, this picture that we see of life from death, of dry bones turning into living flesh, that that was something that was going to take place inside of each one of us. And this is important for us to understand because this is the promise that we've inherited. This is the life we get to live. We are the people who get to live in this age of the Holy Spirit, this age of restoration and transformation. This is the promise that Jesus himself embodied when he rose from the dead after being buried in a grave for three days. It's the promise that was fulfilled in the book of Acts at Pentecost, when as the disciples begin this daunting mission of building the early church, the Holy Spirit comes down and and fills them up. And it's this promise that the Bible says we receive simply through faith in Jesus. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul writes, but if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. And we see echoes of Ezekiel 37 throughout the New Testament. Because this picture of life from death, genuine restoration, is precisely what God said the church could be. And I think one of the things that we, the church, desperately need is this constant reminder of our capacity. We need to be reminded over and over again that there is hope for us 
Not just for forgiveness. Not just for eternal life someday in heaven. Not just for a nice community where we can be safe and loved and and have a good time. Although those things are all great. But there is actually real hope that we could be the kind of people that God says we could be. That when we read the Bible and God says, I'm calling you to do this and be this way and think this way. That each one of us, simply by faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit in us, can say, yeah, that's for me. I can do that. And despite what we can see, despite our struggles, despite our sins, we can know that God is working that kind of restoration, that we have that kind of restorative power in us. Because here's the thing, I I don't know about you guys, but over the past several years, as we've been going through this Old Testament story, as we've been looking at this narrative of Israel, as as we've watched them sin, as we've watched them mess up, there have been several moments where I've had this kind of lingering thought or lingering fear. Like, am I actually really just like Israel? Is there that much of a difference between me and these people who keep on sinning over and over again? When we look at the idolatry, empty religion, the inability to genuinely love and do justice, the fact that they just make the same mistakes over and over and over again, it's kind of sobering. It's like holding up a mirror to our own lives, to our own shortcomings to our own lack of faithfulness. And the danger is that we look at ourselves and we look at Israel and we do like the, the, you guys know the Spider-Man meme, this thing? It's like, are we the same? Am I just like them? Am I destined to mess up over and over again just like them? We could take Spider-Man off the screen. It's distracting. (laughs) But in a way... I kind of think sometimes we look at our spiritual lives as this valley of dry bones and think, man, no way this could really live. There's no way I could actually be that kind of person. No way I could be that loving or righteous or that devoted to God. No way I could be one of those people who's really obedient because I've struggled with the same sins for the last 20 30 years. It's just the way it is. There's no way I could ever have that kind of relationship with God like this person or that person. I try to read my Bible. I try to pray. But it's just hard for me. There's no way that I could ever serve and love and do justice in a way that God calls me to. I want to. It sounds great, but I'm so busy. And at the end of the day, I just don't. And maybe I never will. There's no way I could share my faith. There's no way I could be a leader in the church. There's no way I could serve the poor. No way I could be that generous, that good, that bold, that loving. That's not me. I'm not that kind of Christian. And I know because I can see these dry bones. I know that it's, it's just not happening. One of the beautiful things about the gospel is that it guarantees that no matter 
who you are, no matter what your past looks like, no matter what your personality or spiritual profile is. None of that will ever be true if you are in Christ Jesus. We're not just like Israel. We're not stuck where we are. There actually is a real, tangible difference in Christ. We have the Spirit in us. We've received the promise of this Spirit's presence and power and purpose, and it's in us. And sometimes we can't see it, sometimes we can't feel it, but it is working. And you know, obviously, there's a lot that we could say about the Holy Spirit. We could do a whole year-long sermon series on this. We could talk about what it means to experience more of the Spirit and how to live by the Spirit and participate with the Spirit. And that's probably a series that's coming down the pipe because it's such an important idea. But for now, for this morning, in light of this passage, in light of what God is trying to show us, we want to focus on this simple invitation to hope and to faith. Hope in what the Spirit can do in us and through us. Hope that we can be who God calls us to be in spite of all the doubts and reservations. And that hope is possible through just a little bit of faith. Faith in who God is and what he can do, what God is capable of. So you remember Ezekiel in our passage. Remember this moment where God asks him, son of man, can these bones live? Son of man, can this impossible thing happen? And Ezekiel looks at this valley of dead, dry bones, and he says, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know, God. Sure doesn't seem like it. But I know you do amazing things. So I'll just wait and see. Why don't you show me? Man, if we could have that kind of heart, to look at the dry bones of our brokenness, our sin, our inability, our indifference, and say, God, only you know. Only you know if these bones can live. I know what I see. I know what I think. I know what makes sense to me. But I'm going to respond in faith. Because you're God and you do amazing things. I've seen it in Ezekiel 37. I've seen it in the resurrection of Jesus. I've seen it in my own life that you called me a sinner into a relationship with you. I've seen it in the ministry of the church, both here and worldwide, that you've taken broken people and made this community of people who love each other and serve the world. I've seen your spirit at work. So can these bones live? I'll wait for you to show me, God. Because I know what you're capable of. Let's have that kind of faith. Let's live with real new covenant hope. The kind of hope that God wants us to have in his power and his spirit. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for your promise. That you show us in vivid detail just how good you are, just how powerful you are. So that even in the face of real life, in the face of things that we can see, like our own sin, our own inability, our own failures, that you have painted a picture for us so big and so powerful and so vivid that we could actually have faith that you could do that in our lives. And so, God, I pray that your spirit in us would speak truth. Speak truth against the doubts. Speak truth against the lies that say we can't or we're not. Would your spirit of power begin to transform as we seek you, as we worship you, as we try our best to follow you? And God, would your spirit of grace remind us that no matter where we are in this restorative process, that you love us. And you will never leave us. So God, thank you for your word this morning. Speak it into our lives. Speak it into our hearts. In Jesus' name.